What's up, y'all? want to welcome you back to the Hunt Stand Podcast, Season 2, and this is your host, Will Cooper. The Hunt Stand Podcast is your weekly source for insightful conversations with veteran hunters, dedicated outdoor enthusiasts, and top industry personnel. I'm going to have guests on here who are true experts in their field, diving into the captivating world of our industry and the great outdoors. With each episode, you, the listener, will receive invaluable knowledge, tips, and guidance on how to enhance your skills in the wild and in life. Tune in to be entertained, informed, and driven to reach new heights. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Springfield Armory and their lineup of Model 2020 Waypoint Rifles. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by StealthCam. It's never been easier to go wireless with the Command Pro app. Capture high-quality photos and videos of all the action wherever you hunt with StealthCam's advanced cameras and data plans tailored to your needs. So make sure to check out their website today, StealthCam.com. Hunt Stand Podcast Season 2. Buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Let's go. What's going on, everybody? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. This week, we're continuing our series for the wildest hunt stories ever told, and I'm getting Mr. John Barklow on here today to talk about some pretty sketchy situations he's been in that have been some close calls. Now, for those of you that don't know John, let me tell you about him. He works for Sitka. He helps develop clothing and equipment systems for them. And not only has he done that, he's done that for the military. He's trained search and rescue teams and special operations units. And he has his own brand called Knowledge from Storms, which if you want to check that out, I'm going to drop that down in the description below. There will be a link for that. So make sure you all check that out. But we're going to get John on here to talk about some of these close calls he's had or things that could have gone awry and things that have gone awry. And we're going to get him on here to pick his brain on those situations and find out what he's learned from that so that you can put some knowledge in your memory bank that if you ever find yourself in a similar situation, you're going to be better prepared and survive and not find yourself in a tragic accident. And as John will say in this podcast, don't die dumb. So we're going to get John on here, talk about all that. But before we get to today's episode, Make sure you got the HuntStand app downloaded. We've got the free version, we've got Pro, and then new this past fall, we have Pro Whitetail. So if you want to unlock all the features of HuntStand, upgrade to Pro Whitetail today. And y'all, we just want to thank you for the support we got through season one. Season two has kicked off to a great start. And so we just want to thank you for tuning in to the HuntStand podcast. And if you're new today, thanks for tuning in today. And make sure you rate, review, whatever platform you're listening on today. Make sure you do that. Subscribe, whatever you got to do to make sure that you get notifications when I put a new episode up. So we just want to say thank you to all of you listeners again. I'm going to quit rambling. And here's our guy, John Barklow. All right, man. You ready to get this thing rolling? Yeah, let's go. All right, John. Well, man, how you doing today? Welcome back to the HuntStand Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Will. Thanks for having me back. Uh, you had to rub it in my face immediately um, before we got on air that it's a lot warmer where you are than it is where I am. So I was just saying I'm ready for spring. Yes. I, I almost sniffed it this last weekend, <laughs> and I just had a smile on my face, which most people who know me knows that's not normal. Um, but I'm ready. I'm ready for spring. I'm ready for some turkeys and some black bears and some of that you and me both man you know it's funny we were talking about the weather before we hopped on here and you know i was telling you it was like just about 100 degrees today and uh you know the funny thing is later this week we're supposed to get temps back down in the 20s and 30s highs in the 50s so that's it's texas for you man 
Yeah. So yeah, those those huge temperature swings are the ones that are kind of the hardest to deal with, you know. And earlier in the winter, uh, early winter, like I mean, before the first of the year, so probably in December sometime, uh, we had temps at the house here. We had temps, I think, negative forty-two, and <laughs> some of and we were we're just up off some of these little rivers, and so down on the rivers they were getting like negative fifty, and within two weeks it went from that to like 40 above so you're getting you know an 80 90 degree temperature shift and it Jeez. just it just screws with your body so much you just don't know you Dude. know and the animals unfortunately suffer too but you yeah. just don't know what's what's going on no My, this time of year when you know honestly texas can't make up its mind what it wants to do my sinuses and allergies take oh, a uh-huh. beating a beat yeah. down so well, man, thanks for coming back on the podcast. And, you know, kind of we've done this before and kind of give the listeners that may or may not know who you are. I think a lot of people do, but just kind of give them that quick 30,000 foot view of who you are before we dive in today's episode. Yeah. So who I was, was a 26 year Navy veteran. 20 of that uh, was teaching special operations troops. Uh, specifically like how to survive in winter mountain environments, right? I think Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kind of got wore down from that and parlayed that into a career at Sitka, basically building and managing all their hunting uh, apparel now. And then from there, I took that and um, started my my own side business, kind of providing the same thing like outdoor education for specifically backcountry hunters but but really anybody who wants to go out outdoors um so yeah and that kind of leads me to uh to today so that's that's kind of a high level thirty thousand foot view yeah i mean how long have you been with sitka eight a little over eight years now okay man yeah time flies yeah it does yeah it's kind of crazy yeah um well man today uh we're gonna be talking about we're continuing this wildest hunt series that we've been doing with people you know across different segments of the hunting industry and i really wanted to get you on here because i've heard podcasts that you've done with other folks of you know crazy altitude stories and just things you've been to and we've kind of talked about it before on the podcast we did with you but i really want to talk to you about what the wildest one is for you and how things went down what you learned from it and what the listeners could learn from it if they ever find themselves in any kind of situation similar to this. And so long, long winded introduction short, what is that wildest hunt story for you, John? Yeah. So I was pretty fired up. Will actually, when you, you know, reached out to me and, and kind of just high level framed up what you wanted to talk about. And I I've been thinking about it. I mean, one, one certainly comes to mind and that'll be the one I talk about, but mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about plying the mountains and backcountry for the last 30 years and, you know, teaching thousands of guys and being out there on my own and all this kind of stuff, like you, you, I think the first thing that, that anybody needs to understand, it's not a question of, of if, but when yeah. something happens to you or when things start to maybe unravel a little bit. And, you know, I'm a huge proponent of training and that training just helps mitigate some risk. And when these things happen, that 
they don't become a life and death survival situation. They mm -hmm. just become more of a setback or, you know, an unplanned contingency. And so, you know, it's everything from, you know, near drowning in rivers to um, ending up under a 14 1400 pound horse at night in a boulder field um, that I don't know how I walked away from that to, uh, you know, altitude, as you mentioned, and, and lightning. But the one that the one that comes to mind is uh, a late season mountain goat hunt in Alaska. And so a lot of the training I did, we were based out of Alaska, Kodiak Island specifically, right, which has this mm -hmm. kind of long storied history of severe weather and remoteness and big bears and all that. And when you live there as a resident, you got to hunt late season mountain goats with a bow uh, every year if you wanted to. So you didn't have to draw. So what an amazing opportunity, right? Oh, and yeah. um, the the downside was that the weather was often pretty severe at that point in time. So think, and I'm, I'm trying to think, I think it started, it, it was either November 15th or December 1st, somewhere in there. But, but anyways, whenever that happened, you were, you were able to hunt. So oftentimes it was cold. The days are short. Oftentimes there's snow on the ground. Conditions at a minimum in the mountains were fairly sketchy as far as ice and things like that. Um, and so, it, but it became this, this, this passion, maybe obsession of mine and a few others. And, uh, you know, over the years I was able to harvest, you know, a bunch of goats and go on a bunch of hunts with guys. But, um, you, you learned quickly that at that time of year, you, you clearly had to have a plan and you had to be prepared, but you also had to be versatile or adaptive enough to, to go with the changing conditions. Mm -hmm. So the animals were relatively easy to find, even though oftentimes there was snow on the ground. Um, that time of year is, is the mountain goats rut. Yeah. So if you found some goats, you'd normally find all of them and, you know, you could sort through and find a big billy. Um, but like I said, they'd often put themselves in these kind of precarious situations. So, you know, over the whatever, probably 12 years that I did that of the 14 or 15 that I lived up there, um, you know, I, I, I had some bad falls where, you know, I had crampons on and you're going up a really steep, icy mountainside to kind of get onto a ridge. Um, I had my feet come out for me and just immediately accelerated and, you know, broke my bow and arrows and rest. And hope, luckily I didn't break myself, but I bruised myself up and Jeez. didn't, didn't go flying over the cliff that I certainly could have, but I didn't. Um, and you know, the next week we went out and my buddy, he didn't do the same thing, but similarly, uh, but he landed on a really big rock on his hip and, you know, we kind of had to limp out of there, um, to what I was telling you earlier, which the winds on some of those ridge lines, you know, you're kind of out in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska and I'm not a small guy. I mean, I'm 225 on a, on a regular day. Mm -hmm. You put a bunch of kid on me, let's just call it. 275 to 300 and I'm, I'm walking behind my buddy on the, the leeward side. So the non-windy side of a ridge, cause we thought not only would that be the more comfortable place to be, but maybe the safer place to be. Cause there's not a lot of blowing snow and rocks and things like that. Right. And I, I don't, 
I, I don't exactly know the meteorological term of what happened, but it happened to me twice in two different years. But I'm walking behind my buddy, maybe by 10 feet or so mm-hmm. on this kind of rocky scree field. And the next thing I know, as quickly as my mind can process it, I am literally flying and my arms just naturally came up in front of me, bows on my back. I'm literally flying off the ground like Superman directly at my buddy, which I slammed into the back of his pack and knocked him down. Ooh. Of course, he gets up and he's like, you know, what's what's going on, bro? And uh, and I'm like, I got I'm wide eyed. I'm like, I, I, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea what just happened. It was literally I said, like the hand of God picked me up and just threw me. Like, you know, I've had a, I've had enough of you today. Yeah. Um, and so we realized that we had to get out of there. Like it just, no matter what, it just wasn't going to be a safe situation. Right. And, and that happened to me similarly a few years later when we were going up into a big bowl again, kind of on the, on the leeward side, but the, the wind must've been spooling over and just, you know, really, uh, just kind of spinning in there and we're standing around me and uh me and two other guys and we're talking and we're kind of contemplating where we're going to go and what we're going to do and how we're going to get up on the ridge and literally the wind came and picked me and another guy up literally off our feet to now i'm i'm looking at the sky and i'm parallel to the ground and it lifted me a couple feet off my off the ground off my feet and slammed me, you know, the wind must have gone away, and slammed me, body slammed me back down on the Jeez. snow. And so I realized that, you know, you had some control, but you also had to say, hey, I, I got to be smart enough to know that I can't impose my will on the mountain mm-hmm. just because I want to be here, right? Like, there's a, there's, a, there's a fine line between, you know, being, you know, tough or, or, you know, hard and, and just kind of dumb. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I kind of tell you all that to kind of set the stage. So, uh, it was sometime the first couple of December, I go out snow on the ground, cold temps. Like I said, maybe six hours, seven hours, maybe a daylight. Um, and I had, I had known of a, a group of, uh, goats cause my buddy had been up there. And, uh, so I go up And when you're doing these hunts, there's a fine line between, there's a blending of lines, I should say, between hunting and in this case, like mountaineering. So understanding you're going to be in steep terrain. I've got crampons. I've got um, self-arrest trekking pole. So they kind of look like an ice axe, but they're also a trekking pole. Um, I've got a harness. I've got a small piece of rope. Just, just, just trying to hedge my bets. Um, But you know, going by myself, although I like to do it, uh, probably wasn't the smartest thing to do on this particular hunt. And and back then, Will, the access to not not just cell phones, we had cell phones, but cell coverage was pretty spotty. Mm-hmm. And things like inReaches just didn't exist then, right? So the best thing you had was a satellite phone, which was kind of big. And you just had, you know, you had to wait sometimes, could be hours for you to get a signal to push it out, et cetera, right? So my, my point is there was a little bit of a commitment there as far as, uh, you know, lack of communication. So I go up there and, and sure enough, like pretty, you know, pretty quickly after getting up there, it takes me an hour and a half or so, um, I found the goats. 
got on the goats, started glassing the goats and, you know, found two good billies. Um, you can tell them when they're in the rut, not only are they bigger and there's some characteristics of their horns, like swollen glands at the base of their horns, but mm. they're oftentimes really like brown and yellow from just like urinating on themselves and rubbing on dirt. Yep. And, uh, and what I got to watch was amazing. Cause not only did I get to watch those two big billies spar then what they do is they kind of almost like an audad sheep. They kind of go head to tail and they hook each other with those horns. And the one goat uh, ended up getting, uh, he was bloody on his, on his back hind quarter from getting stabbed by, you know, this other goat. Jeez. And so they, you know, I'm, I'm like, I am literally like, I'm less than a hundred yards. I mean, I'm probably 80 yards at this point, um, kind of out of cover. And I'm watching this whole thing and I'm like, oh my God, like one of them's already injured, but they were both, I would have shot either of them. Um, so then the next thing is after they get done sparring and, and, you know, obviously competing for the females, um, then the, the one who won, right. The one without the blood, um, I got to watch him breed this nanny. So I, I'm just like, I'm literally like got a front row seat to national geographic, you know, oh. but at the end of the day, I'm thinking I'm running out of time. It's getting colder. The way the sun sets, which doesn't come up really high in Alaska that time of year, mm -hmm. it's already it's already gone behind the mountain. So it's you know shadows are starting to get long. I'm like, man, I, this either is going to happen or or it's not. Yeah. And uh, so, anyways, I I kind of slip a little closer, slip a little closer. Long story short, um, the goat that didn't have the blood on him ends up clearing this nanny broadside and at like 35 ish yards, I put a great shot on him with, with an arrow. Right. So boom. And as soon as I shoot the goat, the whole place just explodes in a, in a billowy cloud of snow and they do what goats do, which is they take off for the nearest escape cover, which I knew about, which was about a 400 foot deep ravine that they had slowly fed up out of and were on the top. And then as soon as I shot, boom, that's where, that's the direction they went. Yeah. So, you know, a mountain goat is not the easiest thing to kill with a bow, but I was hoping that, you know, good enough shot. He wasn't going to go very far. So my time, wait 30 minutes, uh, put, put my crampons back on, you know, uh, bows in my hand. And I have one of those self-arrest tracking poles in my hand and I start walking, walking, walking. I go right to where I shot, uh, you know, cause they'd moved around. I didn't find blood right away, but boom. Okay. There's blood, which is always a great sign with the goat. Cause they're so furry that time of year that oftentimes their, their hair and their under hair just like absorbs blood like gauze. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, Oh great. Like blood on the ground. Like, you know, no factor. We're going to find this goat. And so, Will, I'm, I'm, I'm slowly like now I'm like on the edge of the ravine and now it's slowly starting to roll over and it's, it's still reasonably, you know, it's reasonable walking, but obviously you don't want to slip, but you know, there's some vegetation and stuff and then it gets a little steeper and now it, we're starting to get into like, all right, I need to like, I haven't found him yet. I found some blood here and there, but I need to start thinking about what I'm doing. So I, I have a, a strong background in climbing, but this is where, you know, there's, there's a, there's a fine line between confidence and overconfident. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to factor in like, I'm by myself, it's going to get dark. You know, I'm going to, you know, what, what's going to happen if I slip and all these kind of things. But, but I'm also a guy. And at that point I was in my late, 
mid to late thirties. So I'm an idiot, right? I mean, I don't <laughs> mind, I don't mind saying that. And I, I am going to find this goat cause I know I've killed him and it's going to be my best mountain goat ever. And, uh, so anyways, I, I put my bow on my back cause I figure at this point, probably not going to get another, you know, quick shot, yep. put my bow on my back. I've got the two trekking poles in my hand and the crampons on my feet. And I start going down and now I'm like going down sideways and sideways. Well, there's a, as I'm going down the mountain, facing down the mountain, there's a, a ravine off to my left. And mind you, all this is covered in feet of snow. And at some point when it really starts to get steep and I'm starting to question my, uh, my sanity here, I look across the ravine, which now is probably, again, 80, 90 yards across. Mm-hmm. And I can see the herd of groats. I can see them. They're standing there. They have crossed this ravine and they're on the other side now. And, you know, it would have been a, uh, obviously, well, back in the day, especially, it would have been a long follow-up shot, but I'm counting the goats real quick. I'm, I'm literally counting the goats and I see the one big Billy, there were two. Now I see one big Billy and he's got blood on him. So I got excited, but then I realized it was the Billy that had been stabbed by the Billy I shot. So he was, mm. he had blood on his hind quarter which initially had got me excited, but now I'm like, oh, wait, that's the one I didn't shoot. So I didn't find the goat I shot in that herd. So I'm like, he's, he's got to be dead. So, uh, you know, motivation and, and uh, urgency with daylight, which is, again, probably not a good cocktail in the backcountry. Um, I, I get to a point where it's so steep, I have to turn into the hill and I have to start what's called down climbing. So I am kicking my cramp on feet into the snow to gain purchase and then using the, the ice axes on my trekking poles again to gain purchase, Jeez. using vegetation where needed. And I'm looking over my shoulder and now I get to the point where the goats have crossed this ravine, which is now to my right because I'm facing into the mountain. And I realized that as the goats had gone across the ravine, they had caused an avalanche. And so for those who don't know, an avalanche is basically a snow slide, right? Mm-hmm. And it can kill people. I mean, it's kills people every year. Um, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I can see the goats on the other side. My goat isn't there. There's clearly an avalanche. I, I'm wondering if my goat tried to follow them, lost his footing, you know, or died and fell and caused this avalanche. It seemed completely reasonable. So I, I, I filed that away, but the only way now to prove my theory was I had to do one of two things. I had to either go back to the top, go back down the mountain, come all the way back around, which would have been maybe a two mile circuit and then come up this really nasty frozen snowed over Creek bed Mm. that I knew about to get to the bottom. That would have been the smart course of action, or I could just keep down climbing because it was only a couple hundred more feet. Yeah. So of course I chose the, the ladder. So now I'm getting into a point and, and I always know, I always know things are like really getting spicy, especially in a winter environment where it's cold when I start breaking out into cold sweats. And so twice on this down climb, I break out into cold sweats, which is like, 
you know, my body's way of saying any of our body's way of saying, Hey, dumbass, like <laughs> you probably should be seriously reconsidering what yeah. you're doing right now. Right. Um, Pucker factors so at I, an all time high. I, I use the rope. I tie off the rope. I use the rope as a hand or I throw the rope around something. I use the rope as a hand line. I pull it down again. So to kind of get me through this, but it is, it is to the point now where if I was at the bottom looking up at this and I did at one point uh, towards the end of this story, I'm like, I, I, there's no way I'd climb up it. And now I'm climbing down it, which is even more difficult. So, so I've go I've gone through all this, right? So I've gone through all this, but I keep, but I keep going down and at a certain point. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm better off now going down than trying to go back up because i'm i'm almost to the bottom yeah you know and then and you know and then you're trying to rationalize with yourself which you know oftentimes we we make ourselves the victim in the backcountry so you know you can't control avalanches or bears or lightning Mm -hmm. but you can't control your decision making right and so assuming you're well fed and hydrated um you know when you're normally functioning okay you don't normally make bad decisions but if you make one bad decision i found that oftentimes it's easier to make the second one the third one and then all of a sudden this cascades into a series of poor decisions that ultimately ends up in some potential tragedy um that could have happened but but it didn't just because i'm i'm just lucky there's no no other so anyways i'm 50 i'm 50 feet now from the bottom i've down climbed 350 feet of this thing I'm 50 feet from the bottom. Mm-hmm. I'm totally committed. I, at this point, I'm like, well, hell, if I fall off, I'm going to land in a bunch of snow and maybe I break a leg, but at least I'm going to live. Right? Yeah. So to me, that's a win at this point. Um, and I look over my shoulder, my right shoulder, and I can see this pile of frozen avalanche debris. So when snow avalanches, it's an interesting phenomenon, but as it's flowing down the mountain, even though it's cold, and sometimes it's really wet that the friction heats it up. But then when it stops, it stops suddenly in those cold temperatures, it's set up just like concrete. So it's not like it's going to be this big pillowy, you know, powder park thing at the bottom. But I look over my shoulder, I see this giant cone of avalanche debris. And right, I tell you, you want to talk about lucky right in the very top center of this Kona avalanche debris, I see this little black thing. Now, mind you, I'm still 50 feet up, so I don't Mm -hmm. exactly know what it is. And my mind tells me it's what, what, I don't know what we called them up there in ermine. It's kind of like this little weasel. And in the wintertime they turn white, but they've got black eyes and some black nose. So they, and I'm like, Oh, it's an ermine on top of the avalanche debris. Like that's where my headspace went. So I finally get to the bottom, take a deep breath, thank, thank the hunting gods for getting me there safely. And I look at this pile of avalanche debris, which is about chest high now, so about over five feet tall. Jeez. And I've, I don't know how far across, 20, 20 feet across, something mm-hmm. like that. And I realized that the thing in the center I thought was an ermine is the very tip of a mountain goat horn. Damn. I am like standing there and I, my mind cannot process one, what I just went through to get there, but two, what I am actually looking at. And so I'm thinking, is it, so sometimes when a mountain goat falls a long ways, they'll yeah. actually pop, they'll actually pop the horns off. Seriously. And yeah. And, and you'll like, you'll lose one. Like I had a, I had another mountain goat that 
fell another like 400 some feet, but it was really rocking stuff. And I never did find the horns. They both popped off. Mm. I found the goat. I never did find the horns. So anyways, I'm thinking, is it just a horn? Like, first of all, I can't believe I'm finding anything. And so I go over there and again, it's hard snow and I kind of move around and I grab the horn and I pull on it and it doesn't come up. It's connected to something. So I'm like, I, I, I just like the elation that I killed this goat. It's at the bottom. I've survived this down climb. But now my mind progresses to what the hell am I going to do now? Well, so go my, ahead. My, my question, please. <laughs> the question I have is like, you weren't following going down this, this mountain. You weren't following any blood at all. Were you? No, you were just going down there because you knew that those, they had come up out of there. I couldn't find my goat and the, and the, and the shoot had avalanched and, and my caveman DNA told me that the goat had to be at the bottom. So, you're so just I had, pure I was instinct. hanging it. I was honestly, I was hanging it all out to go find out. Oh, dude. And I was rewarded not only, not only by getting down safely, yeah, but now finding evidence, like not a guess that my mountain goat is buried in this or a part of him is buried in this because I, I could only imagine playing this out uh, that I got down there. There's a pile of avalanche debris. There's no goat. There's no blood. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you here in a minute, like this thing was like digging through a pile of rocks. <sighs> so would I have put the effort out that I am, that I'm now going to describe to, to do what I had to do to get this thing out if I didn't know he was there. Mm -hmm. So I get to the bottom and I don't know what time it is, but I, I know I'm, I'm an hour, hour and a half before dark. So I'm like, well, I don't have a shovel. I don't have snowshoes. I'm a, just a dumbass, right? And I know I got to get this thing out and I have to go down this. I, I don't know how long it wasn't quite a mile, but this really nasty choked creek bed to get to get to the bottom to get back to my truck yeah and uh and i'm by myself and he's going to be my best goat so i want to take all the meat and i have to by law and i want to take the full hide so it's going to be a heavy load and uh it's going to be in the dark and i didn't plan for this i i didn't i didn't plan for every contingency that i should have right so i didn't have an avalanche shovel which I never go anywhere now in the snow without, without that, which seems like a weird item to have for hunting, but we can get into that, but you should have one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was by myself and nobody really knew where I was. All, all the things I tell people now that need to do, I've learned because of some of my past mistakes. So I, I pull my cell phone out. I'm in a very narrow Canyon. And I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to call my wife. Well, luckily I got service. I say, luckily in hindsight, maybe not. I get a hold of my wife. I say, Jules, I'm mountain goat hunting. I'm in such and such Canyon. I killed a goat and she heard I need help. Oh God. Which is what I said, but I told her I need help from Aaron and I need him to bring avalanche shovels and snowshoes. Well, she didn't hear the bottom of that. She just goes, I'm in a canyon. I killed a goat. I need help. And it's getting dark, 
right? Mm. So, you know, and I, I don't know if that was, I mean, I put that poor woman through hell, right? So I don't know if in hindsight that was better to call her or not, you know, I, it probably was. But, but again, I didn't leave. I didn't tell her where I was going. I just kind of did it on a whim. And now I'm in this pickle. So now I got to get to digging the goat out. So I start using my, uh, the pick on my, on my trekking pole and my gloved hands. And I was telling a guy, uh, he shoots for Hoyt. So this is kind of funny. I was telling him this weekend. So I, I get, I got pictures of it, which are fairly grotesque, but, uh, so I got, I, so now I dig the head out. Yeah. So now I've got a head exposed and, so the head's kind of at the top, which is why the horn was sticking out. But I still got to dig out this whole body now. Yeah. And if, you know, for those who have seen a mature Billy, I mean, these things are like 300 pounds. Like they're, they're, they're studs, you know. So I get to the point where, you know, kind of, again, here I go, Russian daylight, trying to, trying to impose my timeline on Mother Nature's. And I start using, because I'm like, well, hell, season's over, killed the goat, got no more hunts. I start using my bow. And the, the cam on the bottom with the riser is a handle and digging this goat out of this frozen avalanche debris with my bow. And so now over, and I, I tell you an hour, but I don't really know, but now it's like really close to dark. And I can tell because of the, of the photo, the mm -hmm. trophy photo. Um, now I've got this thing kind of, he's dug out, he's exposed, but he's in, he's still in like a hole. So now I'm like, well, hell, I, I, and he's all twisted up. Like he's all twisted up. His back legs are up near his head. I mean, it's just, he's not broken, but he's just all twisted Mangled. up. Mangled. And I'm like, I, I can't, I can't cut him up like this. Like I, I want the full hide. I'm like, I got to get him out of the hole. So luckily, uh, oftentimes when you're not super smart, sometimes you're, you're strong. And so at least I had more strength than, than, uh, sanity that day and so i get this thing kind of laid out in the hole and i start trying to deadlift this thing out of the hole right which i could get them to move but there is no way i'm deadlifting 300 pounds of dead weight out of a hole by grabbing his hooves right Jeez. so now i gotta dig a trench so now i gotta dig down and dig a trench into this hole that he's been in mm -hmm to like now pull him slowly up a ramp to get him out and set up for trophy photos. Cause that's what I'm thinking. All I want is the damn trophy photo oh. to show and prove that I did this. You know, do you have a photo that I can see it when we're done with this? Oh yeah, no, I'll show you. I'll I got to see this goat. Yeah. And, uh, so get the trophy photo. So now I'm like, now my adrenaline is starting to subside. And now I'm like, oh my God, like now I got to cut this thing up by myself. And now it's doggone near dark, the whole thing, right? So that's almost a blur in my mind, but no kidding. I quartered it all up. I took every bit of meat, mm -hmm. which is delicious. I caped the whole thing out for a rug, um, got it all loaded in my pack and it's sitting there and I'm like, all right, like now I got to carry, and I'm just going to guess, right? But now I got to carry a hundred plus pounds out of here in the dark, did not have a headlamp. That's how ill-prepared I was at the time. Ooh. Uh, down this really nasty, icy, bouldery, you know, like super choked with, with veg 
ravine to get down to the truck without, you know, twisting an ankle, breaking a leg, whatever the case may be. And so I'm contemplating, I'm contemplating this and I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to get any closer by standing here. And luckily it was a clear night. It was beautiful out. The weather wasn't bad. Mm -hmm. And I put the pack on and I get it all cinched up, get the trekking poles in my hand. And I look down the drainage and I think I see a light and it, it doesn't dawn on me what I'm seeing. Cause it, it didn't make sense. I'm like, oh, is it like the stars or the moon coming up or what is that? And then I realize, cause I keep seeing it. It's my buddy, Aaron, who my wife, when she heard me call and say, I need help, knew who to call, knew that this guy would know where I was was smart enough to understand that I was probably a knucklehead and didn't bring what I needed. And that he just, he, so he put all these things together and here he comes up the drainage with, uh, he didn't have the shovels, but he had snowshoes. He had headlamps. He had an empty pack and he was ready to help me carry that thing out. No shit. No shit. And so that was, you know, kind of, I mean, the life and death part was because of my stupidity. Like I said, there's been others where it's been up to mother nature, but yeah. just a series of, you know, maybe a little overconfidence, mm -hmm. but definitely backed up with some, I think some solid skills. I don't think that's too, too, you know, ego driven to say that, but, but where, uh, one decision could have cascaded into a whole series of really bad outcomes. Yeah. And, and just by luck. And so just by chance that happened to be, uh, you know, so the goats on the wall right there, but that happened to be my last, uh, late season mountain goat hunt that, that I went on. And I kind of felt that I'd left like it all on the table at that point. Like I didn't have <laughs> anything else to prove and, and nothing else really to gain by, uh, by going again, man. So, you know, after this experience, you know, you, you're seeing your buddy coming up this drainage and he gets to you, I'm assuming, correct? Yeah. Yep. Helps you get this goat down. And when you start to look back on this now, what was the biggest lesson you think you learned from this whole experience? So probably not, not letting anybody know where I was going, uh, what I was going to do what they should do if I didn't get back by a certain time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, obviously I could have told my wife, but ultimately my wife would have had to contact somebody like Aaron. So, you know, telling Aaron, you know, and let's be honest, there's a little bit of a competition thing going on, you know, Oh, I want to go up there. I don't want, you know, Oh yeah. Um, but you know, letting him know where I was going, letting him know, Hey, if I don't make it back, uh, maybe even giving him some, some potential gear to bring. Right. Um, that was probably the, the biggest lesson. The second one is, I think that I took the, even though it doesn't sound like it, like I took the, I took the path of least resistance. I, I, I made the easy choice, which was to continue to down climb mm -hmm. and put myself in, in more danger than was probably justifiable at the time, uh, as opposed to going up and around. Yeah. Right. And so normally in those situations and, and it could be, 
you know, you're coming down with a, a mule deer on your back or something like that, and you get cliffed out. And the best course of action is to sit down in the dark and wait till sunrise, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, hey, I need to go back up a couple hundred feet to go around this series of cliffs to get down to the bottom. Like yeah. th those are very tough decisions, especially when you're tired, you're kind of mentally wore down. Um, but what I've realized is oftentimes those, those tougher choices are normally the best. Yeah. Right. And the third is to not, and I, I still have a hard time with this, uh, but at least I'm aware of it is trying to slow the fast paced life of a human mm -hmm. down to meet the, the, the timeline of mother nature, right? Like that goat was going to be there in the morning. Those goats would have been there in the morning. I could have gone back in the morning and probably found those goats and, and killed them and had the right gear, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Or I could have come back. I could have climbed up, walked around, got back to my truck, gone home. No bear was going to get them come back in the next morning. Right. But I wanted to get it done. I wanted to get it done. Now I wanted to do it on my timeline. I want to get home for dinner, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And so I forced, I tried to force my will upon the mountain and that almost never works. And I've learned that over time, right. Through some other, you know, near misses. But so th those are kind of the three and that's why it's still fresh in my mind, believe it or not, as long ago as that was, um, you know, I, I have this mantra I, I say in my head now, and I'm like, don't die dumb, don't die dumb, don't die dumb. Because if somebody finds my my carcass in the middle of somewhere, like I want them to at least find me with the right gear on or, you know, uh, yeah. you know, my, my, my knife out or my pistol battling the bear. Like, I don't want to die dumb. Like, well, this guy, he what a what a dumbass. Like he could have just walked around and instead he climbed down and fell to his death. Mm -hmm. Right. Right on top of the dead goat. Like. That would have been, I don't want that in the front page of the paper. And so I just say, don't die dumb. Don't, or don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Um, because oftentimes it can do it. And, and honestly, the, the older I get, the easier it is for me to make some of those right decisions because I'm not so, I mean, we're all still ego driven, but not as ego driven. Right. Mm -hmm. Or I've got some of those notches on my belt. And so it's like, ah, you know, I'll just come back in the morning, you know, and it's not giving up, but I know what can happen by pushing it too, too far. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes the, the reality is you can do everything right. You still got to get a little lucky. You flirted with it that day. Yeah, for sure. So I want to, sure. I want to back up a little bit because you said something that caught my attention. I heard you talk about you had a 1400 pound animal on top of you at the bottom of Boulder field. So, yeah. you know, I got to hear that story, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a good one actually. And that just happened a few years ago. Um, it's, it's, uh, well, I'll talk about it here in a minute, but so, uh, we were on a, a remote fly in moose and caribou hunt in, in far North British Columbia, right on the Northwest territory boundary and flew in. And the, and the intent was we were the last group to go in for the season. We were going to do this moose, primarily moose, but this moose caribou combo, mm -hmm. It was all going to be off horseback. It was going to be at all these different remote camps in the Cassiar Mountains. And because we knew the outfitter and we were all kind of friends, that we were also going to trail out with 
all the guide, the guide and all the outfitters and the wranglers. And we are going to ride out of the mountains back to the, back to the trailhead. So it was going to be this huge adventure. It was going to be like this big hunt in the beginning. And then we were going to hunt our way out and trail all these horses and shut all the cabins and just, just different camps. Some of them were just, uh, wall tents on the way out. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, that that's awesome. But you know, I'm not like, I'm not a cowboy. I'm not the best rider. I mean, and honestly, I didn't know how I would do, but it, it worked out good. So, uh, long story short, we're, we're riding out and the, the whole time, this whole, I think it was 13 days, but this whole trip, uh, the weather was never great. It was always on the cusp of winter or just like full on winter, mm-hmm. depending on the elevation we were at. And, uh, you know, some of these wranglers and guides had been in there for three months, three and a half months. And they kept talking about the trail in to the mountains in the, in the summer, how dangerous it was and how there were like, you know, seven or eight horse skeletons in this boulder field. And that there were these big, uh, these big bogs that had literally like sucked up whole horses, like never to be seen again. And like, I thought they were kind of just blowing a little smoke, you know, Yeah. but they kept talking about it. And the closer we got to, you know, getting to the point of, okay, we're, we're at the last cabin. We're going to trail out the two days or whatever is going to be. Uh, they were serious. And I'm thinking, my God, like I, I I'll walk, like I, I'm good at walking. Yeah. I'm not so good at riding, you know? And, uh, so wouldn't you know it? the last day that we, that we're, you know, it's like from us to the trailhead is like a 12 hour ride or that's what it ended up being. And they're like, this is where all the bogs are. This is where the big boulder fields are, blah, blah, blah. Well, it had, it had rained and snowed the night before. And so all the trails were literally covered in a sheet of ice. So we were Mm. not, I'll bet you, Will, we were not an hour into the ride. We had 20 one 22 23 horses in the in the string okay uh i forget how many people there were probably 12 of us and like 24 horses um and all these people are like super experienced well we weren't an hour into it and we had uh a guide the horse come out from underneath the guide who fell off the horse and gave herself a concussion and then we had a client one of us not me fall off his horse and dislocate his shoulder and get it back in place. Jeez. I'm thinking there's no way I'm surviving this ride, right? <laughs> like I'm literally ready to walk the whole way out. I, I have no issue with that. We're to the point where we're getting to places where they're like, Hey, not only are you getting off your horse, you have to get off your horse, walk around and just let the horse do what the horse is going to do. And hopefully it gets to the bottom intact. Like that sketchy. Holy crap. So now we're into this lowland section. We're kind of like coming out of the mountains and it's still daylight, but boggy. And they're like, you know, make sure the horses all stay in line, you know, this and that. And I'm like, you know, I got a pretty good idea for the animal I'm riding, which is like a 1400 pound Frisian, I think is the type of horse. Uh, Great white was his name. Uh, And I'm thinking, well, this horse is just going to go where the horse in front of him goes. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're kind of near the back of the pack string anyways. And I'm not really paying attention. And the next thing I know, this horse, like the next thing I know, I am literally in a rodeo. I'm literally, I am, I am mimicking the, I believe it's the Wyoming state flag with the guy on the buck and Bronco. (laughs) And I am on this horse 
this huge horse and he is bucking and I just just by chance I didn't plant this way I'm I'm I got my left hand on the pommel and my right hand flew off in the air and my my right hand's up like this and I am like riding a bucking bronc and this horse bucks his way out of the bog I like I didn't still know what happened and my buddies are like do it again do it again huh. I'm like I don't even know what I did the you're first natural time, you know <laughs> yeah you're a natural so this whole thing is going on. Well, all this is taking time, and now we're getting to the section where it, all these horse skeletons are, and it's dark. Like it's dark. That's not eerie. And <laughs> yeah, I'm like, maybe maybe that in hindsight, maybe that's better. So I'm behind, I'm behind one of the wranglers who's trailing two horses, and and this woman is like, she's incredible. Like she's a horse whisperer. And I said, uh, I said, hey, can I turn my headlamp on? excuse me, so I can see what's going on. And she says, no, it's better off if you keep the headlamp off. It'll Sometimes it'll spook the horses and this and that. And I'm like, well, that's the last thing I want, right? So it's me and two other guys in the back. And we're just all kinds of problems and like horses getting their foot stuck in, in holes and just having to stop the, the whole pack train. And I don't know what the front's doing and they don't know what we're doing in the back, but it's moving along. Yeah, And all of a sudden, the the wrangler in front of me, I hear just kind of yelp, like, ee, like that. And I don't think much of it, and I can kind of sort of see the horse in front of me, and he disappears, and I can hear some commotion. Well, my horse, because I don't really know what I'm doing, my horse just keeps plowing ahead. Oh, shit. And the next thing I know, I'm saying, like, really bad words. And I don't know exactly what, what's going on because it's dark. But I am underneath the horse. What? I'm underneath the horse. The horse is landed on top of me, and my left side is pinned to what come to find out is a giant boulder that luckily was totally smooth and kind of laid out at like a 30-degree angle. Holy crap. And it was, it was tall enough that the the boulder ended like right near my hip. So my concern in hindsight was, man, if that boulder like had broke over right at say mid femur, mm-hmm. like that thing might've broke my femur. Right. Mm. But I was lucky enough again, not, not, not talented, but just, I got my foot out of the stirrup, but my legs caught under the horse. So now I'm screaming expletives. Cause I want the wrangler in front of me to turn around and come back and help me. But I also know that if I don't get out from underneath this horse and this big bastard starts thrashing around, he's going to wreck me yeah, bad. Bad. I don't care about the bow on my back. Like at that point, I didn't care about anything but getting out from underneath the horse. So yeah. I got out from underneath the horse and I'm checking myself. My buddies are back there and they're like, man, man. And so everybody's got their headlamp on now. Man, man, you're right. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm doing a quick self-assessment. You kind of know in your mind if you're really broke or not. And I'm like, Actually, no, I think I'm okay. Now the Wrangler's there, the outfitter, some of the guides. And now that the the headlamps are on, I realized that we are in a giant boulder field. I mean, some of these boulders are like as big as cars, you know? And there is a tra- there is a trail, but, you know, the trail, like on any other trail, it's like if the horse stays on the trail, you're fine. Mm-hmm. If the horse goes left or right, it's it's game over. Done. Well, that's what happened to my horse is he stepped in or fell in, however you want to phrase it, a giant hole. The hole was like three, four feet deep. 
and he had completely lost his footing and fallen over on me mm. and his back legs are now tucked up under him. And he's, there's like a tree about like a sapling, you know, a couple inches in diameter mm-hmm. that's got the pommel of the saddle pinned so he can't get up. Luckily, I was able to get out. So now they're like, all right, well, we, you know, let's take the saddle off. Let's cut this tree down. And now we're trying to get the horse up. And we didn't realize his legs, back legs were tucked under him. And so we try to get him up once. It doesn't happen. We try to get him up twice. It doesn't happen. And so now we're taking a break, giving him a break. And the guide, my buddy, Dustin, he's like, hey, man, he's like, he turns to, to the Wrangler and me. And he's like, hey, just so you know, he's like, he's got one, maybe two more efforts here before he's exhausted. And we just have to kill him in place. And I'm like, are, I'm like, are you shitting me? And he's like, no, he says, these things literally, they're so big, like they only have so much effort in them and then there's nothing we can do for them. I'm like, oh my God, like, I don't want this horse to be number nine or whatever on the trail. Like he's gotten me 13 days, even though he fell on me, it's not his fault, you know? Mm-hmm. And so now <laughs> we got all these people and I'm, I'm screaming, I'm like, come on, big white or great white, come on, great white, you can do it, you can do it. And he, he starts going for a third time. And me and another Wrangler are pulling on his back legs and it doesn't look like he's going to get up again. And the, the Wrangler was able to pull his one left leg just enough that he could start getting it under him and kind of like hopping on his back end a little bit Yeah, and, and popped up and popped up on the Ooh. third try. Cause I, I already told Dustin, I'm like, if anybody's killing this horse, it'll be me. Yeah. Like one, cause he tried to kill me, but two, cause you know, I rode him for the last two weeks, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to do it. And now I'm like, now I'm elated. So everybody's like chilling. It's still dark. We're still in this boulder field. Like we're not out of this yet. It's like kind of like being in a minefield. It's like, you got no choice, but to keep going. And, uh, so anyways, I'm like, F you guys, like I'm keeping the white light on at this point. Like I, there's no way. <laughs> and I, I asked the Wrangler after we got, got the horse all tacked up. I'm like, should I ride him? Should I not ride him? And she's like, no, no. Like, I, I think we need to trail him for a while. So I did. And wouldn't you know it, Will, like three, four, probably 400 yards more. We're out of the boulder field now in much mellower uh-huh. terrain. So now I go back to the Wrangler. I'm like, Hey, listen, I hear this whole thing. Cowboys. Like if you get bucked off, you got to get back on. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to not get back on. Like I want to get back on and ride this horse if it's okay. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, I mean, try it. Like if he lets you get on him, you're totally fine. And so I did, I ended up riding him, you know, the remaining hour or whatever out, um, got back, not, not, not afraid to tell you, I got to the trailhead. There was some pizza. There was some Canadian whiskey, which is not my favorite. Uh, I took a bottle of Canadian whiskey. And oh, some come pizza. on, man. I got, I got a bottle. Like it wasn't crown. I got a bottle. It was like, <laughs> you know, some crappy stuff in a plastic bottle didn't matter at that point and i just started you know thinking about it and uh drank myself into a stupor and went to bed um my hip has never actually quite been the same really but i actually came out of it completely unscathed now me and a couple guys got giardia Mm -hmm. uh a week later but yeah i actually came out of that horse wreck unscathed but i think about that and i'm like the chances it would never happen again where i didn't like break a hip, break a femur, blow a knee out, crush an ankle, like, you know, 
knock my head and get a concussion on a, on a, on that tree. Yeah. Like, and, and totally in the middle of the dark, which maybe that saved me. Cause I, I just, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You just kind of like react. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's the most recent close call I've had. And one that I haven't been on a horse hunt since not because of that, but I mean, it's not the top of my list necessarily, but, um, that, that horse. So here's the, so that was the story. Let me give you the footnote to that story or I guess the prologue. Um, so that Wrangler contacted me at the end of this last season. So let's just say late October. And she said that that horse, great white, that was his last season. He was two miles, two miles from the trail head, uh, going to be good, put out the pasture and just live his life, fell in a bog, loaded down, no, 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 uh, client on him, mm. fell in a bog. They couldn't get him out. They had to kill him. Damn. So the horse ended up dying on the mountain, which was tragic, you know? Mm. Uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's my horse story. That's the only one I got, but it's a good one. That was a, that's a dang good one, man. So you've got essentially two similar situations the way I'm kind of thinking that, Something happened right at the, you know, flip of a dime. Horse falls on you. You have no idea what happens. And essentially the same thing could have happened to you in this goat hunt, right? Right. You know, and that's the, yeah. those were the takeaways that you took from that was all you looked at the things that could have happened to you. And then you look at what did happen to you. So looking at these two stories, what is your biggest takeaway looking back on those now? Uh, so you never think it's going to be you, right? You never think, you know, you're the one that's going to get hurt or killed or whatever. Um, and I think sometimes people, I mean, we all do, I, I, I do romanticize the backcountry, which I'm not saying we shouldn't, but there's also a very harsh undertone yeah. to it, right? It is, it is this impersonal, uh, unrelenting environment that doesn't care about you or your goals or you getting back to your family. And it's not to be morbid, but it's to say that you need to train. And I'm not saying physically training as much as just training with like your skill sets and your partners and like being able to plan for these contingencies, I call them Mm -hmm. because it's, again, it's not a question of if it happens, it's a question of when and when it happens, how prepared you are or how prepared you've uh, made yourself can oftentimes determine the outcome. So the horse thing, that happened, right? Yeah. Like I, I couldn't really – that was that was kind of like not an act of God necessarily. But, but if something would have happened – so let's just say I would have broke my femur, the med kit I had on me the training my friends had, Mm -hmm. the people I was with, you know, they would, I, I have no doubt they would have been able to take care of me. Right. Um, the ability of going with good people, uh, the mountain incident with, with, uh, uh, the mountain goat hunt, you know, I was trained, I was capable. I brought the right gear. There wasn't like this false illusion that potentially this wouldn't have happened right now there's accidents and there's also making poor decisions. So, you know, I always like to say, control what you can control. 
which a lot of times is in your preparation and your planning. And then you just have to cast yourself out there and see what happens. And then when something happens, hopefully you can manage that situation and mitigate it so that it becomes, you know, potentially a great story, right. To tell on a podcast and not, and not some tragedy, Mm -hmm. um, understanding that tragedies happen, but the reality is most of the time they are often preventable. So as an example, I could have, and, and, and maybe in hindsight, maybe should have said, you know what? I don't feel comfortable riding this horse through a boulder field at night. I'm not a capable rider. My ego, I need to put in check and go, you know what? I would prefer to walk in the back of the column because you guys aren't going to outwalk me and just somebody who's more responsible and knows more trail a horse, right? I didn't think that. Because my ego is such that, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah. You know, people have already been dinged up, dislocated shoulders, all kinds of crazy stuff, mm-hmm. right? I put myself in that situation. So in some regard, it was preventable. On the mountain goat hunt, I didn't have to down climb. I could have walked around. I could have come back the next day when conditions were more favorable and I had the right gear. So I, I'm not trying to be too harsh on myself or anybody else, but but oftentimes we put ourselves in these positions and the more experienced you are, I think, at least for me, the more uh, uh, cautious maybe I am. So it's not I, I'm not I'm not hanging it out there as much as I used to. Part of that's age, but part of it's experience, understanding what can happen. Yeah. And also part of it is because risk is risk is uh, uh, it's risk is an interesting thing. Everybody has their own definition or interpretation of risk. And so those people who are super experienced on the horses, they felt no risk. I felt risk. The mountain goat hunt, because of my my mountaineering background, although I eventually got myself into a place, like, I was like, oh, no, I can do this. Like, I, I'm capable of this. I yeah. can do this. So there's, you know, where somebody else would have been, hell, no, I'm not going down there. There, I don't care what's down there, a pot of gold. We're going up and around, and we're not going to we're not gonna down climb that thing. So, you know, there's there's just this constant ebb and flow and oftentimes especially with guys and specifically with me i'll say like just trying to keep the ego in check because the backcountry doesn't care no it just doesn't care absolutely not it does not so in regards to the listeners out there in order to not die dumb as you say yeah (laughs) the the best thing for them to take from this today is to be proactive versus reactive. That's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. And just understanding that, that it, it, it's, there's a good, there's a good chance. If the more you do it, there's a good chance something at some point is going to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, statistically speaking. Yeah. The more days you you put yourself out there, the, the more chances are, are it can happen. And that's not to say don't go do it, but it's have a have a very wide-eyed, realistic understanding, and then use that to prepare when you go out there. And if it's a new environment, be more cautious. Right. If you if you if you haven't ridden a horse in ten years, be more cautious. As opposed to the guy who is a really good mountaineer and ice climber, and he he's got the tools and the skills, so you know he can maybe quote push it a little more. Um, but you know, you it, it's just this constant evaluation of, of risk, and then what what are you doing to put in place to mitigate that risk? But don't ever 
don't ever think that it it can't happen to you because the reality is at some point, if it's not you, it's going to be somebody with you. I yeah. mean, I've got, you know, like I said, stories of guys, guys stronger than me, tougher than me, fitter than me, just getting crushed and brought to their knees by altitude, coughing up blood, dizzy, like literally needing guys, you know, carry my pack, help me get out. Um, you know, guys that are crazy strong swimmers, you know, I almost, I almost killed a student, uh, years ago because I made a poor decision to cross a river at, at, uh, at last light. He was injured. He was clearly injured. He was bleeding. I had, uh, worry about uh, a bad infection, but the reality is here we go again. I was, I was trying to impose my timeline on a natural environment. Uh, the river was up. It was crazy high. There were boulders rolling down the bottom. I could hear it. And I just needed to get him across and I could get out of the field, get him to the hospital and, you know, problem solved. The best course of action would have been to set up right there on the edge of the river, spend the night, manage his wound, wait for the, the water would come down during the night because uh, it was all from snow melt. Right. Mm-hmm. So, Rain was going to stop, snow melt because it'd get cold. Water would come down to the lowest it would be. I could cross the river at a much reasonable uh, flow rate and manage the situation 12 hours later. And instead, I pushed it. I was confident. I knew he could swim. I could swim. And we were five yards from getting to shore. He slipped. We were holding on to each other. He slipped. Mm. He pulled both of us in. I was able to to eddy out to shore. His pack got caught on the front sight post of his rifle, Oof. and he was literally trying to fight to keep his head up and got swept around the corner through a series of rapids, and I thought I'd killed him because he had a 60, 70-pound pack on his back, you know? And just by luck, with him being a crazy strong swimmer um, and just fighting like hell to survive, that he was able to eventually you know, get the pack halfway off mm-hmm. to where he could, he didn't lose his gear, but that he could, you know, kind of get to shore. Um, but man, it, it happens in the blink of an eye. Right. But oftentimes when I go back with, with really harsh, uh, criticism and introspection, aside from the crazy, like, Hey, you know, lightning strike. Uh, of course, if you're standing on the top of a mountain with a trekking pole in your hand, maybe deserve it, but you know, like things happen. And so I was like, well, I made a series of bad, I made one bad decision that led to a series of bad decisions that almost cost this guy's life, you know? And so over time you just realize you're like, you know, you know what? Nobody, no, no, you know, nothing's going to happen in the next 12 mm-hmm. hours. We can lay up here, even if it's a little miserable, the next morning it'll be safer. That's a better course of action. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this just fine. And that's what a, that's, I don't want to say a pro, I was going to say a pro, but that's what like, that's what a more experienced backcountry traveler starts to do Yeah, is you start to make those decisions that other people may go, Oh, you're just a wuss. Like, why would you not do that? And it's because, because I know better. Mm-hmm. I've got that experience. And unfortunately I've got the scars to prove it, that the better course of action, our, our best chance of success is to just wait this thing out. You know, you kind of answered a question I was about to ask you in a roundabout way, but when you're in the moment and you're talking about how one bad decision can lead to another and lead to another and then could potentially be a tragedy. In that moment, though, how do you know 
for certain whether or not you're making that bad decision until, you know, obviously, you know, you've made a bad decision afterwards, but how do you know in the moment whether or not that's a bad decision? Yeah. So a part of that is experience, Mm -hmm. right? Just, just having some experience. Um, Part of it is just trying to be conscious and in the moment, because I'll tell you, I knew I was making a bad decision to down climb. I knew I was making a bad decision to cross that river. The horse saying that was ego driven, but I knew I was making those bad decisions. Right. And I'll tell you for as many, you know, uh, epic stories that I've got of, of near misses or, you know, maybe miss, maybe hits, I guess. Um, there's probably 10 or 20 X that didn't happen because I was conscious and in a moment and said, you know what? We're not going to do this. Yeah. I'm not going to do this. We're not going to do this. We're going to go back up. We're not going to keep going down. We're going to go around. We're going to sit here. We're going to ride out the storm. We're not going to push, you know, all the way to the, to the truck or the tent or whatever. Um, so for everyone that's happened, there's probably, you know, 10 or 20 that haven't happened because of that. And every time that it happens and I'm, you know, I think I'm my worst, my worst critic, I'm just like, or my harshest, I'm just like, God, you made another dumb mistake. Like the last time you said you wouldn't do this and the reality is we're human. So we're going to do it. You just hope that you make less and less over the years yeah, and that the consequences of those mistakes aren't quite as, uh, tragic right Mm. or or aren't quite as high and again if it did happen so as an example let's just let's just play it out as just for a case study let's just say that guy were to drown right or or let's just say i found him and he was face down in the eddy i i I had a bunch of medical experience i had a med kit i was ready right i i had thought through that contingency i just never thought it would happen to me Mm -hmm. so if it would have happened i would at least have been able to provide him as best to care as possible at that, you know, in that moment, in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's not like, well, I don't know how to swim. I've never done this before. You know, I have no medical training or, or experience and we're still going to cross the river. You know, it's like, so you're, you're always just trying to make calculated decisions. Uh, but I would tell you that for everyone I've made, there's 20 that I, that I, that I stopped myself either before I made the first decision or the hardest part to me is once you make the first bad decision to not spiral out of control and go, you know what? We're not going to make this any worse. We're going to stop what we're doing and assess Mm -hmm. the situation. That to me is the hardest one because what did I tell you earlier? The easiest thing to do is continue to make the next bad decision, which leads to the easier next bad decision. And, and before you know it, you've gotten into a point where you can't crawl yourself out of that metaphorical black hole. Yeah, and it's it's like you keep pressing that luck. It's like, oh, okay, we made it there. Next decision comes up, like, oh, you know, we did okay that time. Let's do it this time. And it's just you just keep building up and pressing that luck. And then, like you said, eventually, it's just going to spiral. Yeah, and you're you're constantly weighing risk versus reward. Yeah, right. Like, okay, if if you know if your buddy got mauled by a bear and he's got a femoral bleed and you've got a tourniquet on him and you know that the weather's such that no helicopter is going to fly to get this guy out, but you can get him out in 12 hours and it's a shitty storm. You got to cross the river. Like, okay. All of a sudden those things are like, yeah, we're make, we're making some, some 
very risky choices here, but but it's the lesser of the evils because this guy's going to die if we don't. It's a necessary right? decision. It, it is, but oftentimes, like the river situation, I'm like, hell, the worst that would have happened is we'd have, we'd have laid up on the river, we'd have spent a shitty wet night out with no food, and mm-hmm. the next day, you know, I'd have got the guy to the hospital and we'd have gone and had breakfast. Like, you know, and those are the things I have to keep telling myself as opposed to, no, I want to force my timeline or my will on this unrelenting backcountry that doesn't care about me at all. Yeah. It just doesn't. Um, so oftentimes it's the human component that, that makes it bad. You know, we've, we, we pulled out of an area, uh, probably three years ago in the Bob Marshall wilderness, we were hunting elk. We had killed an elk. So we had killed an elk like two days prior. Uh, let me see how that, so we saw, we knew there were grizzly bears. I mean, it's like grizzly bear central, but, uh, so we'd already seen bears, uh, seen a, seen a big male by himself then seen a, a sow with two, two cubs, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, then my buddy, then, then we, yeah. Then my buddy, my buddy killed a, a bull. So we got that out, got that taken care of, went back in. Then we found a dead cow elk and we're like, oh, this isn't good. So that's now a gut pile and a dead cow elk. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, well we can't go over here. So then we moved over here and we found a dead uh, beef cow and it had looked like a bear had started and we're like you know what we're, we're, we're out like we're out there's i don't care if the world record rocky mountain elk is in here the the risk the risk is too great mm-hmm. to continue to stay in that same real estate with him and so we just had we pulled out of that complete area and just went home and reset and went somewhere else you know the next week um you just risk first reward and everybody's going to have their own tolerance for that. Right. And Absolutely. mine's changed over the years. And it, like I said, environment and experience and my partners, am I by myself? Am I with a group of guys? Like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so many things to, to take into consideration. It's a very dynamic thought process. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, the, the, the bad mistakes almost always are, are on me. Like I'll just take the blame for it. Like I said, you get trapped in a lightning storm. Shit can happen, right? It can oh, roll yeah. over the top. Boom. You didn't see it coming. Your actions though, once that happens, will potentially determine the outcome. Mm-hmm. So it's like, do you shelter in place? Do you get below tree line or do you sit there and just stand up with, you know, your bow on your back and, and your trekking pole in your hand? It's like, you know, don't make yourself a victim. And that's where knowledge comes in and experience to know, you know what, let's just get under this boulder. We're better off doing that than trying to like drop a thousand feet of open scree with all this metal on us, you know, and there's just, uh, there's just constant. And that's kind of the cool part about it. But, you know, oftentimes it's like, you know, like the guy that, what is the guy that cut his arm off with like a Swiss army knife or something in Utah? But, you know, I mean, stuff, crazy stuff happens, but knowledge from storms man <laughs> there there you go that's, that's where the name came from. i know <laughs> knowledge from storms learn learn from my mistakes learn from my mistakes I, I am i am i am here to share all of them uh so that others don't have to maybe make the same mistake uh that i did or maybe it wouldn't be as severe as the ones i've made yeah well man a lot of wise words a lot of things spoken today that i think the listeners are going to be able to put in their knowledge banks. So if they ever find themselves in, in similar situations or just a situation that these things could have been applicable before. So 
man, I really appreciate your time today. I know, know we're out of time here, but tell us real quick, tell the listeners where they can find you, social media, everything, knowledge from storms. Tell them all about that. Yeah, so on social media, I am at Jay Barklow, and that's just uh, Instagram. I try to post a video a week of some kind of lesson yeah. or you know, something about a piece of gear. It's not about my cat or my wife's birthday. It's all about knowledge. Um, I've got a YouTube channel and a website, Knowledge from Storms, um, and knowledgefromstorms.com. And then I just, on Monday, a couple of days ago, just released uh, my first outdoor class course Sweet. Um, at outdoorclass.com. It's called Backcountry Mission Planning, mm-hmm. and it walks you through planning and preparation for these backcountry hunts and um, mindset and, and the whole thing to maybe just help people better prepare for, for some of these adventures. Heck yeah, man. I'll be sure to put all that stuff down in the description below link. So, man, appreciate your time. Always love getting a podcast with you and just man, shoot the shit and learn. Yeah. No, it's fun, Will. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, y'all. There you go. Another end to another episode. We just want to thank John for hopping on the Hunt Stand podcast today. We've had him on here before, and so just want to say thanks again, man, for telling stories. Hopefully, y'all will be able to take something from this, put it in the memory bank. Remember, if you ever find yourself in a situation, you're going to be better prepared for it. And before you even get into that situation, like John talked about today, it's all about the proper knowledge and being prepared so that if you ever do find yourself in a situation... When it comes to decision-making, you don't keep making dumb decisions. Don't die dumb, y'all. So, again, just want to thank all y'all for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one.